Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Nat Keohane. He is an American environmental economist who serves as president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, C2ES. Dr. Keohane is an economist with more than 20 years of energy and environmental policy experience in academia, government, and the nonprofit sector, most recently as senior vice president for climate with the Environmental Defense Fund. I'm joined by 18 of my Harvard classmates. Hi, I'm Joel Huberman. I am a retired molecular biologist and biochemist. Um, for the last 10 years, I've been um, no, no longer in doing laboratory research, but rather uh, working on uh, energy projects, especially here in Peterborough, New Hampshire, where I, where I live, trying to bring cleaner energy to our area. Bill Collins, live in Aiken, South Carolina, nuclear engineer in the Navy in a former life, and uh, came to Aiken to work at the Savannah River site cleaning up nuclear waste. Now retired from all that, but very interested in energy sources and so on. Hi, uh, Jerry Secundi. I'm in Pasadena, California. Uh, an environmental lawyer. I specialize in water quality and water supply in California. I've worked for the state, the feds, uh, and private industry. Okay, Jeff. Uh, um, Jeff Fox, um, another class of 63, uh, long, long time uh, teacher of sociology in various colleges, various universities, and uh, in, in recent years, a, uh, a fiction writer, mainly. Okay. Robbie. Hi there. Um, yeah, I'm a retired psychologist, um, lived most of my life in Boston, and now live in Oakland, California. And my connection with your class is really through someone you hope you remember, a man named Frank Bardicke. Oh, um, oh yeah. yeah. He was very active in the um, Woolworth sit-ins, and my husband coordinated a lot of that. So uh, Frank mostly lived in my house <laughs> for that time, as Great. opposed to be doing his studies and wound up having to leave the college for lack of... <laughs> Of, of academic work that he he did really fine and i don't know if most of you know he went on to um do work very much with uh cesar chavez and the great right. Right. Uh, workers union and wrote a fabulous book about that right. um he also appeared one of our biggest pr successes was we uh restaged the um the um uh picture of the Minuteman, the famous picture of the Minuteman back in the American Revolution crossing the, the bridge in Concord. And we redid that uh, moment, uh, dressed Frank up in revolutionary garb. And we were featured, not we, but he in that picture was featured in Life magazine around the same time that we were doing the, the Woolworth sit-in. So I have very fond memories of, of him. Please. Hi, how are you? I'm also class of 63. I'm an almost completely retired psychologist, and um, I'm in the D.C. area. And uh, of note, I'm a uh, steady but small contributor to uh, EDF, and I got an email this morning asking me to lunch. 
to meet some of the people at EDF downtown. And I thought, oh, well, sure. So I will take everything from this conversation, obviously, and we'll add that to anything that I say there. Thank you. Okay. Ann. Uh, hi, I'm Ann Groves. I'm class of 63, uh, um, semi-retired, mostly retired psychotherapist. And um, I'm really interested in the intersection between climate change issues and environmental justice issues. Okay, Anna Huberman. I'm Ann Huberman, class of 63, retired academic librarian and current uh, climate activist. I've worked with a lot with Citizens Climate Lobby and now with local issues with block power coming to Peterborough. Uh, I'm in Peterborough, New Hampshire. I'm actually in Greenfield right now at my summer place. Uh, and uh, I'm really interested in what you have to say <laughs> today. Okay. So, Marcy. Um, I'm in New York City, <laughs> alas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, not retired, work on disaster prevention um, by preventing uh, things like climate change in the first place, rather than trying to fix things after harm is done. Um, and reducing emissions is my focus. Okay. John Woodford. Oh, hi, uh, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, editor, writer, retired. And uh, I was with Frank and uh, Travis Williams of our class, Freddie Gardner, in the picture that Robbie was referring to. And I saw Frank when I visited out in California about maybe four years ago, and we, we got together with Fred Gardner, had a great time. Oh, good. good. Well, how's Frank now? Uh, I haven't been in touch with him recently at all, but I think he's doing okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think he is. I talked to him about a month ago, something like that. Uh -huh. Oh, good, okay. Spencer. Hi, I'm Spencer, and I'm uh, Spencer Jordan, and I'm uh, down here in uh, uh, controversial Florida, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, my uh, concentrations have been in uh, uh, Black economic development and uh, equal rights until 1987, when I uh, encountered the Brundtland Report and uh, did uh, some work in helping to launch that in terms of uh, video broadcasts, and I... Uh, spent the rest of my life in that field and uh, now uh, especially in sustainable development education. And so uh, these are very exciting times for me. Uh, it's, uh, it's like uh, we were all saying, well, you know, that's that's what we were saying back then. And now here it is. So okay. thanks to Ms. Bruntman, President Brunt Grove Bruntman. <laughs> okay. Uh, David. Uh, also class of 63, uh, spent most of my, I grew up in South America and Central America and then went to Harvard and uh, spent most of my life in public broadcasting, WNET in New York and WHYY uh, here in Philadelphia where we live. Okay, Hamp. 
Yeah, Powell, class of 63. Um, I can't think fast on my feet ever, but uh, <laughs> I, I, as one of several, several psychotherapists, psychologists here, only slightly retired, I, I spent a lot of time wondering what is mental health in a uh, time of uh, the uh, climate boiling and, and uh, uh, fascism rising. Okay, George. And I, I just came from watching Nat Kihon in, in a, uh, a uh, meeting with uh, a wonderful Brazilian woman and uh, another guy whose name I can't remember, but it, it, it was nice getting the background on, on what you're doing there, Nat. Well, you're a glutton for punishment then, Hammett. Thank you. <laughs> George. George Jones, class of 63, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And for good or ill, I'm glad to say that I think we're all in better shape than Mitch McConnell. Kathy. <laughs> Hi, Kathy Nelson, outside Washington, D.C., class of 63, retired economist. Um, my, professionally, I'm most concerned about affordable housing, but when I retired and my husband died, I thought, okay, the two things I'm most concerned about otherwise were climate change and uh, justice, racial justice, environmental justice, and um, hmm, had a third thought. Anyway, I'm delighted that for the topic today and really delighted to uh, finally get around to coming to Last Negroes at at Harvard and this fantastic Zoom. And I've been away on vacation. Okay. So anyway, glad to have you, glad to be back. Thank you. Thank you. Susan. Hi, I'm Susan Swanton, Rochester, New York, retired librarian, class of 63. I'm going to be living uh, with three sides of my historic house surrounded by 15 foot high solar panels. So I have to confess to some ambivalence about the use of prime agricultural land for solar. And I know that's probably not politically correct, but I'm going to be living it, folks. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Mason. Uh, Mason Morfitt in Freeport, Maine, uh, class of uh, 62. Uh, spent 33 years working in land conservation with the Nature Conservancy. And more recently, I'm doing uh, climate change work at the local level here in Freeport, Maine. Wonderful. Okay, and Nat, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on and uh, tell us about yourself and about what you're doing. Well, thank you so much, Kent. And thanks to all of you. It's an amazing, it's an amazing group. I feel very uh, lucky um to be uh to be brought into this uh group for a day and, and get to share some of my thoughts and hear yours um i'm especially lucky since i i went to college uh a little bit further south uh in connecticut um and, and, and several decades later in 1993 but uh but i did get my phd uh at uh, at harvard so i i do feel some uh affiliation even though uh, even though Yale was my was my undergraduate uh, experience, so thank you so much, and and uh, can't thank you for for hosting this. I think I, we were connected by Bob Hogay, um, who has has been a friend for a number of years, and okay. and I 
I think, uh, knows some, perhaps some of you all. But uh, what I wanted to do, um, and I will, I will actually, as part of what I will, I'll, I'll say, I'll give you a little bit of a background on me and and um, and and where I come from and what I'm doing. Um, but I mainly want to talk about the climate crisis and uh, and how we can make progress on it. I heard a lot in the intros that was. Um, that was great, uh, ranging from real interest in clean energy and block power. I know Donnell Baird, he's one of the amazing leaders of the, of the movement um, and the, the importance of justice, but also the challenges that Susan mentioned in terms of where that, where that, where those solar panels go up. Um, Mason, you mentioned being in Freeport. I know there, are, you know, there's a lot of wind development in Maine that that has, that some folks uh, also have concerns about, and yet. Um, we're going to need to do it if we're going to address the climate. So these are some challenging issues, but also really important ones. And I appreciate the chance to talk them through. And as I said, I, I thought I would just share some overview idea uh, thoughts and framing. I think this is a group that probably has a lot of sophistication around climate, but I don't always want to assume that. So say a little bit about that and then and then open up uh, for, for a fair amount of time for, um, for Q&A and discussion. I always enjoy the give and take of questions. And I hope when we get to that point, you'll Ask anything that's on your mind, because I I have the um, I have the privilege of having worked enough on climate that I can I can I can I can cover most ground, and I, I like to do so. Um, so let me then sort of start up with with sort of a, a, a few a few thoughts, maybe for ten or fifteen minutes. Um, this won't be a doom and gloom talk. Um, I'm, I I approach this from the uh, from the stance of we need to make progress. We have made progress. We can make progress. So I'll have a lot to say that's more optimistic, but. I also do want to ground it in climate science and climate reality, because I think it's important that we start by really understanding what's going on and how urgent it is. And then we can go into that more optimistic and hopeful place. Um, and some of what I'm going to say will be very familiar, but I just, you know, folks come at it from different perspectives and, and different levels of understanding. We know that the earth is warming. We've got multiple independent data sets that show by now an increase in the global average temperature of 1.1, maybe almost 1.2 degrees Celsius, about two degrees Fahrenheit since the pre-industrial period before the Industrial Revolution. It's actually much higher on land. Um, so that's, an, that's a global average on land and see it's, it's significantly higher on land, which is one reason why it's always so hot. Um, but we do see that warming and we, it's higher at the poles. Uh, and it and it not just it doesn't just create warming, of course, but that represents um, energy that's trapped in the atmosphere that's driving really strange things to our climate that I'll come back to in a minute. We also do know that human activity is the cause of that warming. We are pumping uh, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, other heat trapping gases into the atmosphere. A lot of that is from fossil fuel combustion and clearing forests, but also other ag activities like industry and agriculture. Um, and we know that the temperature increases due to those greenhouse gases. And there are multiple lines of independent evidence and independent <laughs> reasoning. Basic physics and atmospheric chemistry will tell you that if you pump a lot of gases that trap heat into the atmosphere, they're going to trap heat and energy. But we can directly measure the rising concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Uh, we, we can eliminate other potential causes like sunspots and uh, water vapor and so on. And there are some real telltale signs. One of my favorites is that the lower atmosphere where greenhouse gases is trapping heat is warming much more quickly than the stratosphere. And that's a signature telltale sign that what we're doing and what we're putting into the atmosphere is the cause of the warming we're seeing. 
So there's a lot that's uncertain around the science of climate change. And if anybody says you, we know everything about it, right? We don't know everything about it, but the things we don't know should make us more concerned, not less, because those uncertainties are not about the basic fact of whether the earth is warming and it's responsible. They're about how fast it's going to warm uh, if, if, mm. the, if we continue to emit greenhouse gases and how severe the impacts will be. And I will tell you, having worked in this field for almost 20 years, the science has consistently gotten more worrisome. The things are heating up faster than we expect. The, um, the impacts, the extreme weather, we're seeing much faster than we thought we were in a much larger area of the globe. Uh, and so the things we don't know should scare us, frankly, rather than reassure us. Um, and that, I do want to say the final point is that we are already seeing the devastating impacts of climate change anywhere you look. You know, when, when I started this work, my own work on this about 10 or 20 years ago, it was it felt like climate change was something, you know, we needed to work on it, but it was going to be something that happened to somebody else across the globe uh, in, you know, 15, in, in two or three generations. And, and it's not. It's something that's happening today. We're seeing it already. Just to give you a sense, in, in the United States alone, one measure, I know somebody mentioned disaster preparedness. We've in One measure of this is we've seen um, $20 billion weather and climate disasters a year on average in the past three years. Those total uh, almost 450, so 430, $440 billion across those three years. That's just extreme weather disasters. That's just economic value. We see it in the news. We see it in the heat waves that have just hit the Southwest and the West and are moving East. Uh, and I think hitting a lot of us, we see it in the flooding. I was uh, caught in the rainstorm on the, on the, on the East side of the, uh, of the, uh, of the Hudson a few year, a few weeks ago, which led to record flooding on the West side of the Hudson in New York and, and flooding in, in, in Vermont, you see hundred year flood events that are now happening every five or 10 years. That's not, that's not what a hundred year event is supposed to be. Um, when I started working on climate about 15, 20 years ago, it was common to say that we can't attribute any one extreme weather event to climate change. And that's not true anymore. Um, we now are able to see the signal uh, of the climate, it, the changes that we are driving in the climate. We can see the signal in the, in, in the data and we can attribute the hotter weather, the, the greater heat waves, the more intense heat waves and the flooding and so on to uh, climate change. So we know that we're making a difference and we know it's going to get worse. Um, and so that's the piece we need to sit with. Um, when the wildfire smoke was enveloping New York City a few weeks ago, my 17-year-old daughter asked me, is this the way it's going to be? And, you know, we're not going to have wildfire from Canada every year, but essentially the answer is is yes. One, one, one of my colleagues told me something that I keep sticks in mind. He basically said, "This I know this year is a record, we're, we're coming out to be record heat, but it, think about it this way, it's going to be one of the coolest years of the rest of your life. And so we need we need to sit with that challenge because uh even if we stopped emitting today the the accumulation of greenhouse gas is going to continue to drive uh, warming and we're not going to be able to stop emitting today so we need to sit with that and, and i'm talking about impacts on the u.s and they are much 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 more devastating in sub-saharan africa in bangladesh where millions and millions and millions of people live within uh, a meter of sea level so we need to sit with those with those impacts but we can't um dwell in them too long because we also need to solve the problem so I said this wasn't going to be a talk about gloom and doom. So let me shift away from, from that part uh, and talk about how we can make progress and how we can do that in a way that also strengthens the economy and meets many of the other goals that we all 
have. Um, so let me say really quickly, just so you know where I'm coming from and, and my my arc and a little bit about what I the organization I lead now, though I won't spend much on that. Um, so I graduated from college, uh, I already said from Yale, <laughs> somewhere in Connecticut in the in the early 90s. And that was just when, and I, I'll deviate a little bit from climate change for a minute to tell one of my favorite stories, which is it was just when the Environmental Protection Agency was putting in place a market-based emissions trading program for sulfur dioxide, which is which comes out of coal-fired power plants and causes acid rain. And that program was part of the 1990 Clean Air Act, which passed Congress with bipartisan support, something's hard to believe now, and was signed by President George H.W. Bush. It was a signature achievement of his administration. And it still ranks as the most successful environmental policy in history. We cut sulfur dioxide 86% in 20 years, brought hun literally hundreds of billions of dollars of health benefits from cleaner air, especially on the Northeast corridor, uh, the Northeast seaboard. Um, this program is why you don't hear about acid rain anymore because effectively we solved it. Now, if you talk to an ecologist, they'll tell you there still are some issues in parts of the, uh, you know, the, the Northern Appalachians and, and the Green Mountains in Canada, but effectively we solved the problem. And we did it with using this novel market-based approach. And that inspired me actually to become an economist because I, was, I wasn't working on that directly, but I was in DC at the time and that I was fascinated to understand how incentives and markets could lead to more effective environmental policy. So I got my PhD, I went to, to Harvard and uh, got, got, got a PhD in political economy and then and came out as an economist. I taught economics back in New Haven at the School of Management uh, at Yale for several years. Uh, but I, you know, I was I was a kid of an academics, an academic brat. But I wanted to be uh, have greater impact in the world, and so I joined the Environmental Defense Fund. Actually, I waited until I was promoted, and then once I was promoted, I left, uh, and I and I joined Environmental Defense Fund uh, to work first on legislation in Congress to design the same sort of cap and trade program for carbon dioxide as we had used successfully in acid rain. That climate legislation, for those of you who followed this for a while, ultimately ended up failing. But it is worth noting that there are successful cap and trade programs using that same approach for greenhouse gases in California, uh, for the, electric, the electricity sector in the Northeastern US, um, in the European Union, Korea, and, and a number of other countries. And in fact, around the world, um, carbon pricing generally, I'll talk about more in a minute, is is gathering steam. So then in 2011, I joined the White House. I worked for President Obama as a special assistant to the president for energy and environment. Got some government uh, government experience, which was an amazing, amazing period of time. And then went back after a couple of years to EDF to run the climate program. And two years ago, I left to join um, the Center for Climate and, and, and Energy Solutions, or C2ES. And so I know... Um, I think, Elizabeth, you said you are going to meet some of my former colleagues at EDF, so you can tell them you've heard from me and say, and say hello. I still have many, many close colleagues there. So C2S, just a little bit about us, for 25 years, we have developed and advocated ambitious and practical solutions on climate and clean energy. We started off as the Pew Center on Climate Change and then became C2S uh, 13 years, 12 years ago. Our mission is to accelerate the transition to a thriving, just, and resilient net zero emissions economy. And, and there are three things that set us apart. We we do a lot of policy and analysis that a lot of other folks do, but we're a widely respected nonpartisan independent voice on policy. We work very closely with business. We have a business leadership council of 41 Fortune 500 companies that we've worked with for many of them for the whole 25 years to advocate, to press them to advocate for policy and help figure out how policy can meet their 
net zero goals, uh, and they represent really the whole of the real economy, uh, including some pretty big industrial emitters, as well as tech firms and banks and utilities and others. Uh, and we're also a trusted convener. We bring a lot of different stakeholders together. We, we've done that in the international negotiations, which I'll touch on very briefly at the end. We helped lay the groundwork for the Paris Agreement by bringing negotiators together um, to help build consensus around key issues. And we do that in the U.S. regionally. We've begun bringing stakeholders together in places like Morgantown, West Virginia, or Houston, Texas, or Southeastern Michigan um, to bring a wide range of stakeholders together to talk about the specific economic opportunities in the low carbon transition and how to realize them and feed that into the policy work we do in Washington. So if you're interested more later on, I'd love to catch up and, and tell you more, but that gives you a snapshot. So let me go back to what I said I wanted to spend a few minutes more on, and then I'll wrap up and we have time for discussion, which is how do we accelerate that transition to a thriving low carbon economy? What are the policies we need? What's the state of play that we can build on? Um, so I wanna start by noting the progress we've already made U.S. emissions are about 17% below their 2007 peak. That's good news, but it's also not nearly fast enough, okay? So the, the fall has come, that decline has come as a result of a bunch of things. Policies at the state and federal level, um, market forces that have made it in particular much more expensive to burn coal alongside the regulatory changes we've seen, and dramatic improvements in technology. You see solar and wind power. Solar power, the costs have fallen by 90% over the past decade, wind by 70%. Um, battery storage, much, much cheaper than it used to be. We all see electric vehicles that used to be a crazy you know, science fiction thing and were kind of a weird niche market 10 years ago and now are much more, uh, much more abundant. Uh, in the power sector, we've seen the combination of abundant natural gas and clean air regulations and cheap renewables um, cut overall power sector emissions, which used to be the biggest source of emissions in this country by um, more than 35%. And the scale of those opportunities, so we've made progress, we need to really accelerate it. As a benchmark, the U.S. commitment under the Paris Agreement is to cut emissions 50 to 52% below 2005 by 2030. And it is 2023, and we're about 17%. So that's great that we're below, but we really need to accelerate that progress. Now, the good news is that the scale of that progress and the opportunities, I think, will accelerate. It's about it's poised to really increase dramatically thanks to recent legislation passed by Congress, including the first legislation we've ever had that tackles climate at a at a massive scale. You've heard, I'm sure, about the Inflation Reduction Act, which is not really about reducing inflation. It's really about <laughs> pumping investment into the economy and clean energy. Uh, passed last year, includes um, what's uh, what's been uh, estimated to be $370 billion of clean energy investment over the next decade in the U.S., but could be much more because it's all in the form of tax credits. Two-thirds of it is the form of tax credits that just depend on how the companies take them up. Um, so there are tax credits for zero-carbon electricity generation, uh, including not only renewables, but also nuclear power and long duration storage. There are credits for new fuels, sustainable aviation fuel, green hydrogen, credits for capturing and storing carbon or clean energy manufacturing for electric vehicle purchases, household ener energy e efficiency. There's a huge amount there. Um, and that will uh, that came on top of the bipartisan infrastructure law passed in 2021, which also include tens of billions of dollars in clean energy R&D. 
um, aimed at things like green hydrogen and direct air capture. Uh, and actually a third piece of legislation, or a couple more pieces, the CHIPS Act, which, uh, the CHIPS and Science Act, which also included some clean energy legislation and uh, or clean energy money, and, and the Energy Act of 2020 actually passed at the end of the Trump administration that authorized many of those clean energy R&D programs and set the whole thing up. So we have legislation in place that will catalyze literally hundreds of billions of dollars uh, that will put hundreds of billions of dollars of government money in and catalyze uh, much more a private investment. Let me, by the way, say I if, if I may I may finish up just in a couple of minutes with my remarks. But um, uh, but if, if folks have if anything I've said has been unclear, feel free to jump in. But otherwise, I'll let's jump to questions in just a minute because I'll, I'll just I'll complete a couple more things and then and then we'll jump in. Um, so big progress, lots more on the horizon. But what are the? There are going to be a bunch of challenges, and so let me cover those really quickly. Say something very brief about the international scene, and then we'll go to questions and, and discussion. So, for one of the some of the big challenges, one is the electric grid, uh, and these are related. The, the electric grid. I mentioned how much progress has been made in the electric power sector, but we've got to build a grid that not only cuts emissions much further than the thirty five percent we've done already. We basically got to get to zero in the power grid. We also have to do it in a way that provides affordable 24-7 clean energy. So wind doesn't blow all the time. Solar doesn't shine all the time. That means we need battery storage or nuclear or hydrogen or carbon capture or something that's zero carbon that can run all the time. Uh, and we also need to build out a much greater grid. We need to maybe double demand over the coming decades, double generation, even as we switch to a cleaner grid, because everything else that we're going to do in the economy to cut emissions, a lot of that is going to be plugging into the grid electric vehicles plugging into the grid, electrifying buildings to reduce building emissions, plugging into the grid, same thing with industry and so on. So the power grid is gonna be a key focus. And that, that leads to another big challenge, uh, which is building new clean energy infrastructure. Um, we All of that projection that I talked about in terms of what the IRA can achieve can only be done if we can actually build out new clean energy infrastructure. That means transmission, that means hydrogen pipelines, carbon dioxide pipelines, EV charging infrastructure, new facilities to, to make all of these clean energy goods and so on. And right now, all of that is hung up by a permitting system that is really sclerotic. Um, so in terms of policies, uh, we need policies that are gonna help realize the potential of the provisions in the IRA. The most important step I'd say is permitting reform which needs to be done in a way that really brings in engagement with affected communities. But we got to do that in a way that also makes it easier to build clean energy infrastructure. Um, I think there are a bunch of other areas where bipartisan cooperation could be possible, clean energy R&D, climate and trade policies, uh, natural climate solutions. We can talk about those. Um, I think I still think I'm, an, I'm enough of an economist still to say that the most powerful policy tool would be a market based approach that puts a price on carbon pollution, whether it's like that cap and trade program I talked about before, or it's a carbon tax. The politics of that are challenging, but I don't think they're impossible. Not gonna happen this Congress for sure, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to think that we could get back to that conversation. And it would it would reshape the incentives across the entire economy. I sometimes think about it as a magnetic field that would align incentives throughout the economy and make <laughs> every other thing that we're doing work better. Um, so let me say something very quickly about the international context, uh, but just very quick to, to, to frame the discussion. And then and I, I see lots of hands already. So thank you. Um, I just want to say there's there's a in the international context, there's also a ray of hope. There's a lot of concern. You'll hear people say 
we're just not doing enough international cooperation. And that's absolutely right. We are not doing nearly enough. The US needs to move much faster. China needs to move much faster. India needs to move faster. The Europe, Europe is probably the only uh, group of countries or region that's doing what it should be. But I do want to say something. Here's a factoid I like to use. Because the, so the Paris Agreement, which was, enact, which was agreed in 2015 and, and finally came into force a few years later, is actually helping to really drive progress, even though we know it's not enough. And let me just give you the data points to say that. When, before the Paris Climate Conference in 2015, and I was there, everyone in the climate world was there, um, a report was released by a number of experts that said, that looked at where we were headed and estimated that the trajectory for global emissions meant, was, was putting the, US, the world on a pace for a 3.7 degree Celsius rise in temperature by 2100. By the way, they actually didn't say 3.7 degrees. They actually, they did the right thing, which is they had a probability assessment. And so they had a probability of this and a probability, you know, and basically it was the medium was 3.7 degrees or so, but there was a risk, significant risk of over four degrees Celsius, eight degrees Fahrenheit, just an incredible increase in temperature. The latest estimate is about 2.9 degrees based on policies that are already in place. And lower than that, maybe 2.4 degrees, maybe even less than two degrees, depending on what you look at, based on targets that countries have put forward. And if you look at that risk distribution, we've cut off the risk of four degrees or, or more, at least given the policies in place. And we've opened up the window to keep emission, to keep temperatures below two degrees. And so for all of the challenges that we face and the need to move faster, we do have a framework in place that's starting to deliver results. And we can talk more about that as well if we want. But I've gone on too long, so um, let me stop there and Yay. jump to some of the questions. And Jerry. Ken, can I let you? Yeah, you'll you'll go ahead. Thanks so much. Jerry. All right. Um, Nat, I'll kick it off. Um, Jerry Scunny in Pasadena. Up until I retired, I was president of a trade association of business, labor, and environmentalists, including EDF, worked very closely with them. And worked very closely with Mary Nichols, whose name you may know from the Acid Yes, Rain of course. Program. I know I know Mary well. And so do I. And also our cap and trade program. And I'm a huge advocate of both. Uh, some of our environmentalists are not as uh, <clears throat> rational as EDF. I'll put it that way. They do not count uh, hydro, for example, as clean energy because they don't like dams. But my real question is nuclear. And I know Bill Collins is on the line and he may have some better thoughts than I do. I don't hear you pushing that a lot. Why are we not doing more in nuclear? California is down to one nuclear plant at this point in time. We had two, we're now down to one. Uh, and it's probably on its last legs at this point in time. I, the last I looked, I think we have over a hundred nuclear plants in the United States. Can't we push that? Because there are really very little emissions from nuclear. Yes. So Kent, should I take them in turn or do you want, should I gather some? Or Yeah, take them, them in turn, take them in okay, turn. Super. And I'll try to be, distinct because I see lots of questions and I'm really excited about the discussion. So Jerry, you're, first of all, you're absolutely right. Nuclear has to be a core part of this. Um, my current organization, C2ES, has actually always been an advocate for nuclear. That makes it, because we're completely technology neutral and and willing to kind of buck the conventional wisdom of, of our friends uh, in the more mainstream environmental community. But even at EDF, we when I was there, uh, you know, up to a few years ago, um, I think EDF, we were trying to get EDF to be a place that was a willing to be a little bit more outspoken on the on the importance of nuclear. And let me very quickly, though, talk, because nuclear, when we think about nuclear, you can think about it in three categories, okay? So there's existing nuclear plants, and we absolutely need 
to make sure that those existing nuclear plants keep operating as long as it's safe to do so and keep providing zero carbon electricity generation um, for their useful lives rather than being shut down prematurely. It's about 20% of US generation from of electricity generation is from nuclear, it's zero carbon. So it's much, it's a big share of our zero carbon generation. Um, the good news is that the IRA, the, in, the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA uh, included significant incentives. So I think the economic positioning of our existing nuclear fleet is in much better shape than it was uh, a year ago, precisely because of the IRA. The second category is new light water nuclear plants. In other words, new nuclear plants that use today's technology. That is a real challenge in this country. And it's a challenge not because of environmental concerns, which I think have largely subsided as the environmental community has understood, has woken up to the need uh, to think about carbon, but it's because it's very hard to build. It, it, I don't. I don't remember the last time we built a nuclear plant on plant on time and on budget uh, in this country. There's one that's being built now. I forget where it's in. Uh, it, it's in the process of being built in in South Carolina, I think, but is way over budget. So, you know, some of that obviously is regulatory, clearly, but a lot of that is just a nuclear plant. You know, traditional conventional nuclear is a very expensive endeavor. So that leads to the third category, which in my mind is really interesting and promising, which is what people call advanced nuclear, fourth generation. I'm sure others on the call will know more. But the 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 nut and the, the key point is we ought to be putting significant, and we are putting significant clean energy R&D investment, research and development into advanced nuclear and deploying advanced nuclear. We are doing that and we're starting to see the fruits of it. One of the companies on our business council is Dow, and they are very excited about they have a lot of industrial heat needs um, and nuclear is one of the few things that can provide that level of heat. And so they're building some advanced nuclear facilities in, in one of their um, their plants in Texas to try to provide that heat and also co-gen electricity. So um, we need to do much more of that. I think nuclear is part of the solution, but it probably looks like those new technologies rather than the old ones. Okay, Kathy. Thank you very much, Nat. Um, I have two questions. I'll, I'll start with this easy one, I think, that maybe someone can answer this uh, this morning. And that is, um, I'd like to buy, if such exists, a thermometer that sh uh, shows wet bulb global mm. temp outside. But let me go on to my other more basic question. Uh, and that is when I and my husband were working at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in the late 60s and early 70s, um, climate change was the, the common discussion both at work and at dinners at home. And, you know, we knew, or, or I'm an economist, my husband was a physicist, um, we knew that my husband knew what I only knew through him and others at the lab that Exxon and the oil industries were aware of the problems of climate change. And my husband ended up working at the Department of Energy for 20 mm -hmm. years for 20 plus, 20 years from 1980 to 19 to 2000, often as the non civil servant, either acting or a real head of the Office of Energy Research. And he kept on agitating for energy, the Department of Energy to do more about climate change. And he was summarily um, 
fired in 1999 in the Clinton administration by a political appointee because he was such a troublemaker asking for that and also saying no to other political suggestions. He then went on to um, uh, got a, a new job at NASA the day later because he had been working over, for over 20 years and, on the internet and information technology R&D. But my, the general question is, what, is there any possibility of getting money and fines and so forth from the oil companies and all the people who, um, you know, basically lied for 40 years to get us into the horrible situation we're in? So thank you, Kathy. Let me say two quick things. I, I, there's, I think you've, you've laid out a lot there that's very important. One is um, on the oil and gas, and particular Exxon, which uh, I think has, you know, uh, there's a lot of good evidence that um, they were really, uh, that they had done all the science and they were saying one thing and, and then doing a completely different thing. Naomi Oreskes, uh, who's a, a Harvard um uh, professor has done some great work on this, um, and so I recommend her her book uh, if you if you haven't. And there's a movie that was based on it if you haven't seen that. Um, uh, so, and there's a lot of work being done uh, to try to, um, including lawsuits, uh, not by C2ES, um, but by some of our, uh, our our friends in the climate community to try to hold them accountable. I, I, the other thing, though, I will say is there's been a real sea change, as what you said, Kathy, you know, is a great illustration of. There's been a real sea change in, um, in public attitudes to this. And I briefly think that that's, you know, in large part, and that's been too long to come. If we had been doing action like your husband was saying in the 90s, we would be in better shape than we are now. But I think a large part of that is because it's becoming so much clearer to so many people that something is going on. I mean, not this group. This group is very sophisticated. You know about climate. But to the, you know, most people don't wake up every day thinking, thinking about climate. I certainly do, but I'm in the tiny, tiny, tiny minority. But when we see the kind of extreme weather events and the kind of flooding and heat waves and heat domes and all these things, and we start to connect the dots to climate, I think people start to understand this is an issue that really needs attention. And we're starting to see that reflected slowly but surely in the in in some of the polling data uh, and the public awareness data. Still very polarized. We got to get around that. But I think we're see that's one reason we're seeing more action. Okay. Jeff. You're muted. Muted. Jeff. Okay. Now now do you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Great. I, I was impressed by your by your TED talk where you talked quite a bit about uh Mato Grosso in, in Brazil and I, um, there was one thing that seemed to be very encouraging. I'd like to you get a little clearer idea sure. about, about how it works, that uh, you can set things up so that it is more profitable to the companies investing to keep the forest than to destroy them. Um, yes. We, we see the forest as an asset rather than something that's in the way of our agriculture and other exploitation. So if you could explain just how that works. Sure, sure. Thanks, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And and if you haven't seen the TED talk, I think Jeff Jeff just gave you the. I mean, just provided exactly the the key thing, so you'll be able to keep up. Um. So yeah, it, you know, I'm an as you've heard, I'm an economist. I I always think about oh, yeah. how we can create policy solutions that um, change incentives and that realign incentives so that 
companies and private citizens and actors and and, and businesses and everybody have uh, a profit incentive to do the to do the right thing by the climate, a profit incentive to be to invest in clean energy, deploy clean energy, and so on. I also think there are times when you need regulation. You can't rely only on the profit incentive, but if you can arrange that, you can align you know, the ability to make money and the ability to reduce emissions, that's a very, very powerful incentive. And so in the case of forests, what Jeff was talking about is we, it was in an international setting. And so instead of a policy like the US would put in place, we took advantage of, of the voluntary corporate actions that we see companies like Amazon, for example, Amazon, the company taking, but many others. And we put together a coalition of, com- of companies that was willing to make investments in carbon credits from verified reductions in emissions. And so the idea is if you can demonstrate in a place like Mato Grosso, the biggest, one of the biggest states in Brazil, one of the biggest agricultural producers in the world, if you can demonstrate as they have a historical record of doing that you can reduce tropical deforestation and all the emissions that come with that. You can, Mato Grosso has reduced tropical emission, tropical deforestation emissions by 94, 95%, even as they were increasing soy production and cattle production. And that's a real shift in how they're producing things. And if you can do that, um, you can dem- you can demonstrate that that's real emissions reductions. You want to create incentives that can continue to drive that so that it's more profitable to keep tropical forests. The, the, what's happening is that the carbon, the value of that carbon credit, every ton of emissions that you prevent, that you avoid, that you reduce, you get a credit for that can make it more valuable economically uh, to keep forests standing than to cut it down. And you can find other ways of planting soy, other places to plant soy, other ways to do cattle agriculture that are more intensive and don't require deforestation. That's the story that I told in the TED Talk. And we're trying to take that story and apply it to other sectors like the power sector in developing countries to, to have some economic incentive and economic reward for reducing emissions. Mm-hmm. Amp. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to, uh, I, I'm pro policy, but I also think in literal terms and, mm-hmm. and, and how to get things across to the general public. And what I think in terms of is one, how decrepit a lot of uh, uh, Nashville and Tennessee where I live is fairly prosperous. Yet what I see as part of our grid here is pathetic. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I, I, I don't know what is going to change our, if so much comes down to our grid, I don't know how much is, is going to change that. That's number one. <clears throat> number two, the uh, uh, best way that I've been able to visualize this is through the uh, Apple uh, series extrapolations. Mm which 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 shows the uh the uh it it, it has for those of you who haven't seen it, it it shows the world in like 10 year increments in the uh future and it really helps to visualize when you see a preacher in Miami uh talking to a congregation where the uh water has has been a, a, a uh 2 feet high in the pews for uh for the last 3 years <laughs> That's really interesting. I, I will pick up on that second point. I was I had dinner with a friend uh, a couple nights ago who uh, is one of the senior folks at an organization called Climate Central, which is run out of 
yet another call, Princeton <laughs> in New Jersey. Um, but one of the things they do, they've done some great work on climate science and communications, very much in line with what you just said, Ham. They equipped a car with a Google, like a whole, I guess a GIS sensor and a whole bunch of cameras, and they drive it around and use that to develop flood maps because they can have fine-grained intuition. Okay, exactly how tall are we, you know, what's the altitude shift and so on? Where are we in a low depression? And then they can, so they use all that data, super high-grained data to then project what it'll look like under flooding precisely so that they can have really realistic scenes. Here is your community in, you know, in a hundred-year flood that happens every five years or in a thousand-year flood that starts happening every 10 years under climate. So that kind of I, I love the, I, I will check out extrapolations. That's really great. And that kind of imaging and visualization can be critical. And just briefly, what you said on the grid, absolutely important. We, you know, for a, uh, it's it's not just, as I said, about building out new generation. We've got to modernize the grid and the infrastructure. Got to have much more high speed uh, high, or high voltage, rather, uh, power lines uh, to connect different parts of the country, much better distribution and transmission. Even small things, you mentioned Nashville, I mean, in in local areas, it turns out that the transformers we have in place just aren't up to the the specs that need to be to handle the kind of load we need if we're going to have people driving electric cars and electric vehicles and electrifying their buildings. So there's a huge amount to be done. Uh, that's one of the, the reasons that that IRA legislation is going to be so important to help, mm -hmm. to help fund that. But that's why we need to clear the way for that for that kind of work. Marcy. Um, <clears throat> many donors and boards at many tax-deductible nonprofits have a financial stake in increasing the production and consumption of electricity, even when that increases world hunger or displacement or preventable deaths. They also support environmental deregulation, changes in the permitting process, that I don't think can work. If you wanted to incentivize drastic reductions in electricity use instead, how would you do it? Thanks, Marcy. That's a great question and a challenging one. I will say, I'll start by saying, I think we need both. And I think most analyses, every analysis that I've seen of how we get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions in this country, which is means we're balancing anything we emit with something we remove so that we get to zero and we're not putting more climate pollution into the atmosphere. Um, every analysis I've seen says in the US, we're gonna need both to really economize, to really uh, to improve energy efficiency. So we're using it much more efficiently and we don't need to grow the demand as much, but also to probably use more of it overall in order to electrify cars, electrify buildings so that we can cut down on fossil fuels, right? So the connection there is it's much easier to decarbonize the electric power grid because it's much easier to generate electricity with wind or solar or nuclear or hydro green hydrogen, if we can get that far, um, or geothermal. Those things, you can generate electricity and you can use the electricity as the energy and that you can use to push out oil and gas and the fossil fuels. And so that's why electric, their electricity is going to be so important and why we're going to have to both increase the amount we generate and reduce the amount we use so that we create this scope for other uh, other uses and other uh, demands. Just quickly, uh, there's some great efforts out there. I forget who it was that mentioned Block Power, uh, B-L-O-C-P-O-E-R. Um, it's a great group written, uh, driven by a guy named Donnell Baird 
uh, who, which, which they've figured out how to electrify essentially every building in every city in the country. And they're starting and trying to, I mean, he's got big ambitions. So they're trying to build that out um, city by city. And that's a great example, uh, Marcy, of the kind of thing we need to do so that we're cutting down uh, and we're cutting down electric, electricity use, even as we probably will need to generate more of it. But life cycle use is an issue too. When you make all the all the equipment, uh, yes. So we and, need and yes, mine exactly. the seabed for uh, the materials. Um, what harm are you doing? And and I think that and I know there. I, I I'll be quick because I know there are other folks with hands. I will just say I think Barcy, you are putting your finger on some of the most challenging aspects of this because. Um, if we're going to drive the transformation of the economy to a low carbon economy and zero emissions, um, there are going to be areas we, we, we do need to mine more cop copper and lithium. So how do we do that in a way that's really environmentally responsible and safe? That is a really tough challenge. Uh, how do we build out more transmission lines and more energy and, and, and do some reform, permitting reform in a way that doesn't harm environment, you know, uh, doesn't harm communities and also doesn't harm uh, ecosystems, that's a really tough challenge. So you've put your finger on some of the really hard challenges, but I think we need to face those and take them on because we need to drastically reduce our, our greenhouse gas emissions if we're going to address the climate crisis. Okay, Spencer. Oh, yes. Um, this is fascinating. Uh, I have uh, like to ask you about the uh, question of education that you mentioned. Mm, yes. Uh, and, uh, and the reason is that it relates to Marcy's uh, 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 and all of the other questions exactly is that uh, what people do uh, and not what people plan really mm. affects you know what is going to be the outcome. And uh, I re I remember uh, Grove Bruntland in the control room at uh, Lincoln Center broadcasting by the way with uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and ten other uh, heads of uh, state. Uh, stating all this that had to be done in 1989, and uh, which led to the Rio summit uh, and all the COP conferences since then. And uh, she was saying, she turned and said, uh, you know, we're going to have to educate 6 billion people around the population at that time in the world yeah. because the decision makers and how they decide to approach uh, like uh, what's happening now when Lulu in uh, uh, 19, uh, 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 in the COPE 9 uh, stated in 2002, you know, that we need to save the forest. And now we're saying now, we guess what? We need to save the forest. And he said, why don't the nations contribute to the saving of the Amazon? and all the other tropical forests in, uh, in West Africa and in Indonesia. Nothing was done. Now we're coming up with that too late because these questions were not put into popular mm -hmm. mindsets. And so that's where I'm asking you about education, which is uh, where I'm focusing a lot of, in, uh, of effort. Uh, the schools and educational systems are not responding only very belatedly. What do you, what plans do you uh, think and how are, how is innovation accepted into the halls of power that you tread in daily? That's such a great question. Thank you. Uh, Ken, I'm wondering whether we should get questions from Bill and Joel, and then I can, 
I can answer all of them. And I know some folks may have to leave at the hour. I can oh, go a little okay. bit beyond. But should we do that? And then I'll try to answer all yeah, of them. Yeah, let's do that. Can, go, yeah. Bill and then uh, Joel. And so, Spencer, I've got your question. I'll come back to it. Two things. One concerning nuclear power. I mentioned my background is Navy nuclear power. And I reflect on the fact that the Navy has built hundreds of nuclear power plants and operates them, not hundreds at a time because there aren't that many ships, but it's been very successful. And uh, the uh, I, I also reflect on Electricité de France. I think that's a centralized organization. The reason the Navy has been successful is because of highly centralized design and procurement of all those nuclear power plants centralized rigorous training for the operators and centralized rigorous standards for quality control and uh, those have led to success in the navy nuclear power program we don't have that kind of unified centralized approach with commercial nuclear power uh the uh and we've had troubles as a result um Electricité de France, I think, is highly centralized. I don't know them in detail, but I think they are. You know, I believe in pressurized water reactors, small ones, perhaps. I don't know what other advanced things there can be. Of course, the propulsion plants for ships are small. They're not 1,000 megawatts electric plants, which is what the commercial nuclear things tend to be. So small is good in that regard. Uh, and also a centralized approach and centralized administration on the model of the Navy or EDF. That'll be very difficult to do in this country, but I think that kind of approach is needed. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I wanna mention is transportation. In the long run, I don't think electric cars are the solution. I think, first of all, high-speed rail, intercity, get away from air, airplane travel as much as possible in the country. Uh, inter within the cities public transport that is electrified, whether it be trackless trolley buses like we used to have in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or electrified rail, uh, to get away from private vehicles as much as possible. And the private vehicles need to be powered by hydrogen, which doesn't require any exotic materials. But of course, we need the, uh, unlike, unlike these lithium batteries, which require ex exotic and environmentally damaging and all that stuff. Uh, so, of course, we would need to have the infrastructure for producing the hydrogen and and then providing it to the vehicles for refueling. So those are my comments. OK, let's let's go to uh, Joel. I, <clears throat> this question is. Uh, touches on economics, but it's not uh, not one that you have dealt with um, about a decade ago, I was involved in starting up um, alumni action for uh, Harvard divestment from fossil fuel companies. An economist friend of mine said, that's not gonna work because as soon as the fossil fuel company, as soon as people start, start divesting from fossil fuel companies, the fossil fuel companies are gonna say, well, we better sell our, our assets before they become outlawed. And they'll start pumping out gasoline and, and oil as fast as possible. So my question really is, what's your view of uh, divestment movements? Excellent, okay, super. Thank you, those are great questions. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sorry that I 
went on so long and won't have more time, but I will touch on each of them. Uh, and I also want to thank everybody for, for I'll, I'll come back to that too. So uh, Spencer, you had a great question on education. Uh, and, you know, I noted your long involvement in that and sustainable development of the Brundtland Commission. That's amazing. That's that's really that work has been so important and foundational. I mean, I, I will say two things quickly. One is, I think in terms of public education, I'll come back to your question on schools, broad public education. I think some of the some of that is, as I've said, like the climate is is doing the educating for us in some sense. I don't mean to make light of that, but. I so so I think that efforts like my friends at Climate Central, some of the things we try to do at C2S to try to draw connect the dots for people in a non in a non-threatening, non-polarizing, non-political way, but say what you are seeing and the changes you are seeing, the heat waves, the flooding, the droughts, the wildfires, that is driven by climate change. Um and, and some of the most heartening things I hear are, you know. Uh, I, when I talk to friends who are active with farmers and, and agricultural areas, you know, farmers and uh, have often been really resistant to climate because they think it's a big, it's a big government. I mean, we could have a whole discussion around the role of big government and, and farming and so on. But farmers see that as an intrusion on their lives or in the past, they've been concerned about that. But more and more farmers are, they're the, they're the ones on the front lines of the temperature changes and the seasonal changes. And they see what's going on. And there are ways to communicate with folks about what they're seeing that ground their understanding in their own experience. And then you can get them to say, okay, now let's think about what that means for your kids and your grandkids. So there's some progress we're making in terms of schools. Obviously, I, you're right belatedly. I think you're absolutely right. At least in terms of higher education, we are starting to see this Harvard obviously has a Harvard, Harvard has a major institute called the Salada Institute that some of you may have heard about. I was at the opening a few months ago, oh, I guess. Um, uh, Columbia has a climate. I'm I live in New York City. I'm in outside DC, which is where C2S is based right now. But I live in New York City. Columbia has started a climate school. Uh, Stanford has started a climate school with an enormous gift from John Doerr. Other universities, Duke. Michigan, et cetera. So we're starting to see that at higher education and hopefully it'll trickle down to the rest of the system. Um, Bill, you had, I mean, I obviously defer, Bill, to your expertise on nuclear power. I think your point is really right. One, my sense at a much more of a layman sense of why it's so expensive to build nuclear power plants in this country is because each of them is their own engineering challenge. And we haven't done the kind of centralized approach you're talking about. One of the advantages of those advanced technologies, as you know, one of the advantages of the advanced technologies that I see is they're easier to standardize a little bit. They're smaller, they're more modular. So maybe you give up there. I'm sure there are trade-offs there, but at least that may make it easier to standardize and to come closer to that maybe kind of approach. You talked about transportation. Absolutely. I mean, it's a little bit like uh, what, what I was saying with Marcy. Um, we, we, there's no silver bullet. So I think electric vehicles can be tremendously effective for um cars for 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 light duty vehicles uh but we're going to need other we're, we're going to need much more high-speed rail we're going to need more public transportation and and i absolutely agree that hydrogen green hydrogen can be an important uh potential fuel for maybe for heavy duty trucking or maybe replace that with high-speed rail we also got to figure out aviation because even if we cut it down it is still a pretty wondrous technology and so thinking about sustainable aviation fuels and hydrogen can be important too um and uh, and then finally, um, uh, Joel, you were asking about divestment. I guess I have, uh, you know, I have two hats that I always wear, right? One is an economist and one is a climate advocate with a little bit of an activist in me, even though C2S is not an activist organization. 
So the economist in me will say, look, divestment is, uh, it's probably not going to achieve its goals directly because first of all, you have to have a pretty massive amount. It's very hard for any one organization to move the market or make even a dent or a difference by divesting. It's okay. Thank you very much. Somebody else is going to buy that stock. Um, and it's very hard. It's like a boycott. It's very hard to drive the market with that kind of, unless you get an overwhelming response and most people just want to earn money on their returns, it's very hard to, to, to really shift behavior. Having said that, the advocate in me and the activist in me thinks like if I were if I were an 18 year old student in college right now, you are damn right that I would be demanding divestment. And so what I tell students when I meet with them is I say, look, from a substantive point of view, I kind of I understand why people say it's you know, it's not going to be really effective, but you should go out and call for it. anyway." That was Nat Keohane. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. Thank you.